The title of today's sermon is, again, it's all about the gospel, part two, as we look at this kind of introductory, these introductory remarks that Paul gives us in the book of 1 Corinthians. We started to look at one of two realities that the gospel gives us as Christians. Last week we looked at the gospel gives us our sense of, our, of identity, our sense of identity. If you were with us last week or you were listening along, I wonder, has this come up in your mind through the course of the week? Maybe it was through a failure, it was through a difficulty, it was through a circumstance that you were filled with fret and worry. Did the reminder that, that your identity is sealed in Christ, did it offer you hope? In the midst of that moment. That's really what this is all about. It's living out the truth of God's word. And last week we saw that Paul assures our hearts. He assured the Corinthians hearts back in the first century. That if they are in Christ, their identity, our identity is secure. Our status as Christians, Paul has mentioned, is that we are united with Christ. We've been set apart, verse 2 says, by Christ Jesus. And because we are set apart by Christ Jesus to be his own people, so we are unified not only with Jesus, but with one another. Our unity is placed in Jesus Christ. Our unity is not placed in our own likes, our own interests, our own personalities, our own abilities, none of those things. But it says at the end of verse 2, we've been called to be saints, not individually, together. With all those who in every place Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see, our union to Christ, it not only unites us to God in, in a right, right relationship with God, it unites us to each other. And many times we view the Christian life as kind of this solo project, that we go through this Christian life and, and it's all about us and we don't really need God's people. We don't need the church. Hopefully COVID has, has emphasized to us how much we really do need one another. And, and we have been united together to walk hand in hand with one another. That's our status. It's no longer simply ourselves. We've been bought by Christ. And that leads us in verse 3, we looked last week, that, that we have been given not only a sure status, that we know that we are Christ, and we've been united to God through Christ, and united to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, but now we've been given hope that our standing before God is secure, we have grace and peace. Today, we're going to unpack the second perspective that the gospel gives us. 
throughout the chaos and the good times of this life. Not only does the gospel give us our sense of identity, but the gospel gives us a specific hope. We're going to see once again this morning, the key theme to our series is we must cling to what truly matters. Let's say that together, okay? One, two, three. We must cling to what truly matters. And as we talked about last week, from start to finish, what matters, the basics, is understanding the gospel and throughout our Christian life, digging deeper into that gospel and what it means to me every single day of my life. Let's pray as we look, secondly here, at this gospel hope that Christ has given us as as believers. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would meet with us. God, as we are gathered together as your people, as we later have the privilege to partake in in the Lord's Supper, Lord, fellowshipping with, with you and with one another, Father, would our minds be directed to the hope that we have Lord, we turn on the news, we we read uh, magazines, newspapers, websites, all of those things, Lord, it points us away from hope, how we need the reality of hope in our hearts as your people. Lord, would uh, would you make the roots of the gospel grow deeper into our hearts this morning? If there is one who has never turned to you in faith and repentance and have looked to you as their rescuer, their savior, would today be the day that they make that decision? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul notes in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a familiar greeting that Paul gives Christians. But he's going to unpack more about this grace in verses 4 to 8. In fact, I don't know how many of you are grammar gurus. How many of you like the English language and you like studying grammar? Okay, a few hands. Verses 4 to 8 is one long sentence. I mean, uh, this is the type of sentences, uh, when I was uh, doing my doctoral work, that they said don't write, because they're too long, and you need to have short sentences. Well, Paul unpacks one big sentence with, with so much hope in it, that it should cause our spirits to just bubble up with joy and with excitement. Let's look at what Paul writes in verse 4. I give thanks to my God sometimes, occasionally, always for you. We can stop right there. The things we're going to read in 1 Corinthians, I wouldn't write this. I would say, guys, I have been having a lot of heartburn and anxiety for you. But Paul says, I give thanks always for you. This is the reality of the gospel. This is where our union to Christ means everything. 
that even though a church that has so many issues, Paul can look at the work of Christ and say, because of Christ, not because of your own actions, I give thanks always for you. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because not of their actions, but because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel produces hope in the life of a Christian. It is, if, you are, if you are lacking hope in your life this morning, it's not simply because of your circumstances. It's not simply because of relationships that you're struggling with. It's not just because of trials or difficulty. The, the, the root, those may be fruits, but the root is you've forgotten the gospel that I've forgotten the gospel, the realities of what it means to be in Christ, not just because of a prayer you prayed years ago or a decision you made, but because the gospel is working in our hearts every single day of our life. And that produces hope. And what he focuses on is what he introduces in verse 3, this theme of grace. You see, we see in verses 4 to 8, the gospel produces an outworking of grace in our lives. And this isn't a one-time thing. This isn't a thing just for the future. This is an everyday thing. Grace in the life of a Christian. Every single day, the days that you wake up and you're feeling great, the days that you wake up and you're ashamed of your sin, the days that you wake up and you can barely get out of bed because you're sore, whatever stage of life you're in, grace is at work in the heart of a Christian. And the reason we know this is, again, not because of our actions, not because of our circumstances, but verse 4 says, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 4 tells us that this grace, this outworking of grace in our life, it was given in Christ Jesus. God has given us His grace through His Son, Jesus. Have you ever heard the phrase that a gift is only as great as the gift giver? I mean, I could offer you a million dollars after church today, but how much worth do you think that gift really is going to be? Someone can promise you something, but, but, the, but the promise is only as good as the person's character. And the reason that we are secure in the grace of Christ is not because of the recipient, me and you, but because of who is giving the grace, God through his son Jesus. That's why we can wake up every day and be secure in who we are in Christ because of who is giving the grace, not because of us as recipients. This is a passive verb, if you're a grammar guru. It was given you, not that you gave it, but you are simply the receiver of it. And then we go on and we read in verses 5 and 6, 
This grace is given to you in Christ Jesus. And what's the outworking here? Uh, That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now you may say, Pastor Adam, what does all that mean? Basically, it can be boiled down to this one sentence. Not only is the outworking of grace in our lives because it was given by God through Jesus, but secondly, this outworking of grace, it literally makes us rich in Christ Jesus. We may not have a lot of physical, tangible money, or riches. In fact, uh, there's different incomes uh, throughout this room, let alone uh, Christians worldwide. All of us, compared to most Christians in this world, would be considered extremely rich. All of us here in America. But the gospel makes every single one of us rich in Christ. Verse 5 says that the outworking of this grace that God gave us through Christ, that because of it, we are enriched in Him. Literally, we're made rich. This is very important as Paul sets this up. If you remember last week, uh, verses 1 to 9, and specifically verses 4 to 8, really unpacks for us Yes, it's one long sentence, but, but in, in, in a few words compared to the whole book, it unpacks for us the foundation of everything the Corinthian church is struggling with. You see, it was a, if you remember, we talked about the city of Corinth, and there was a great pull and temptation for wealth in the city of Corinth. You remember that Corinth was a city where you, you, uh, you could go and, 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 and make it big for yourself. And people would build statues to themselves for the good works that they've done. And they would put inscriptions to themselves throughout the city so they could be well known. We know this was a temptation even for the Christians here. Because in chapter 4 and verse 8... Paul is kind of being sarcastic to them because this is their attitude. And he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And sarcastically he says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You see, the attitude going around many in the Corinthian church was, we're important. We've made a name for ourselves. We are rich. We can be considered as nobles, as rulers. And what Paul is saying here is the only way someone can claim riches is when they are looking at the grace of Christ. And they say, Jesus has made me spiritually rich. And that's a non-negotiable for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel makes us rich. True riches, mark it down, are always found in Christ. 
That's why Paul writes again later to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's on the screen for you. He says, for you know, again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's no thought of tangible physical riches there. Many of these Corinthians uh, were of very low esteem in the city. There was not a lot of wealth and money for many who professed the name Christ, but yet they could claim full riches, a spiritual inheritance because of Jesus. Have you been thinking this week more about what you don't have physically or have you been thinking about the riches that Christ has given you this past week? Has your mind been, been consumed with, with, yes, maybe even important things, but somehow you've missed the most important thing? We have been made, and look at what it says in verse 5, in every way you were enriched or made rich in him. Every way. No exceptions. No fine print in the contract. God has provided when he gave us Jesus everything that we need in this Christian life. Many times we think, oh, yeah, I need Jesus plus this. I need Jesus plus that. Boy, I could be a lot more effective for Christ if God would just do this for me. You know what that is? That's a theology of I want the gospel plus this. And the call of the gospel is that we forsake everything because we know that Jesus is enough. Boy, aren't those words harder to, uh, to live than to say. But after explaining that we have been made rich in Christ in every way, no exceptions, he does want to point out two specific ways that we've been made rich in Christ. Because these are two things that the Corinthians specifically struggled with. What are the two ways? He's made us rich in him in all, again, every way, and now all, no exceptions, all speech, and all knowledge. These are two elements that the Corinthians greatly struggled with. And before we even talk about these two elements, I would dare say that there are specific elements that, that, are, that are unique in our circumstances, in our life, where we struggle to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus in certain areas of our life that the person sitting next to us may not struggle with. They struggle with a different set of areas. You have to ask yourself, what areas of my life do I struggle trusting in the all-sufficiency of Christ? Because it's in those areas that we've really got to give over to the Lord every single day. For the Corinthians, it was speech and it was knowledge. Paul really focuses in on speech in his letter. 
For instance, just a quick overview here. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1, at the end of verse 17, and we'll be talking about this in weeks to come, Paul says, I didn't preach with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Literally, that has the idea, um, wisdom of words, speech, a grand oratory that was impressive according to human standards. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In chapter 2, verse 1, he again has to say, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or words of wisdom. Verse 4, my speech or my words and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. In verse 13 of chapter 2, and we impart this, talking about spiritual truth, in words not taught by human wisdom. Chapter 4 and verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will uh, find out not the talk or the words of these arrogant people, but their power. In chapter 12 and verse 8, in chapter 14, it talks about the spiritual gifts regarding words and speech. You get the impression just by that quick overview that there was a desire for speech that somehow was to be elevated beyond what God has already given in Christ. They struggled with this. Corinth was was a city where grand uh, speeches and, and, and human rationale and philosophy and all of those things were very important. And the, the more persuasive the speaker, the better the message. And, and this was all according to human wisdom. And there was a desire for, for the, the church to want to imitate that kind of of communication and to elevate that. And Paul says it doesn't matter what your gift is, your spiritual gift regarding words. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are. No, God has already fully enriched you regarding speech, not based on man's wisdom, but his own. But then he highlights This idea of knowledge. And again, we see this word all because Paul is emphasizing, listen, there is nothing of importance that has not been already given you concerning these things that you are seeking. It's not Jesus plus. Even if you, as we'll see in chapter 12 and chapter 14, if you have been gifted by God... To proclaim the message of God, Paul says, that's a great gifting that you need to use for the Lord, but that does not elevate you above anyone else that knows and can proclaim the wisdom of God, the gospel. There may be people that come up here and preach. There may be people that, that um, are, are, are good with words, 
But that does not somehow put anyone on a pedestal and lower anybody else because if you know Jesus, you know the message of the gospel and we are called to exercise the grace that God has given to proclaim it faithfully where he's placed us. To co-workers, to friends, to family. God has enriched us. He's made us rich, not because of the messenger, but because of the message. This idea of knowledge was another thing that the Corinthians struggled with. This this idea of a proud knowledge. Of a greater knowledge than just simply the reality of what Jesus has done. In fact, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, he talks about an empty knowledge. The next time this this word comes up is chapter 8, and he says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge alone. He talks about the gift of knowledge in chapter 12. God has equipped people with the gift of knowledge. But yet if that gift of knowledge is somehow detached from from the reality of the gospel and, and full reliance upon Jesus and his grace. Chapter 13 verse 2 says that knowledge without love, it's empty, it's void, it's nothing. So once again, there is a temptation for these Corinthians to trust and to put their hope in Jesus plus these other things. These other things that were very attractive to the world and to culture and other things that made them look good. How many times do we do that? How many times do we even serve God in this church so that we can look good before each other? How many times do do we do things as if somehow the source of those things is outside of what Jesus has already provided? You see, when we realize that that we have been made rich in Christ in all ways, it does allow us to serve out of an abundance of the heart and not out of I have to. We see in verse 6, it says, um, we've been made rich, we've been enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, Paul is saying, you don't have to be searching for this special, these special eloquent words. You don't have to be searching for this puffed up knowledge. Because where the gospel has made itself evident in the heart is the reality that we have received grace in all of these ways. The gospel has been confirmed to us that we can say from an amen of the heart that Jesus is enough. That I don't need to somehow look good before others because my identity is found in Christ. That I don't have to look wise to the world because this world is not my home. So we see this morning that we have hope in the gospel because of the outworking of grace 
that is manifested to us every day of our lives. And it has been given to us in Christ. It has made us rich that we are not somehow lacking in our Christian life. But then thirdly, verses 7 to 8, talking about this outworking of grace, it assures us that God's grace, it equips us for every single day of our life. Nothing's worse than being assigned a task and feeling unequipped, right? Have you ever had that happen? Maybe at work, you know, they're so busy at work that they train you in two days what should take two weeks. All right, go at it. Get on those phone lines. I was, I was on the phone at, at a, um, a, a school agency, um, part of one of my jobs working through seminary, and you really feel inadequate not knowing what's, what the next call's about. There's nothing worse than feeling unequipped, but God's grace, verses 7 to 8, assure us, equip us. Verse 7 says, so that you are, because of this grace, you are not lacking in any gift. Again, Paul specifically addressing a problem in Corinth, and I would dare say it's a problem that so many of us, if not all of us, experience that somehow I'm just sub-Christian. Somehow, if I just had my act together like that person, then I could really live the Christian life. If I just had that gifting, or if I just had that set of circumstances, or whatever it is. Paul says in verse 7, that because we've been made rich in God's grace, we are not lacking in any gift. This is the first time that this word gift or spiritual gift is used in Corinthians. And, and basically he's setting this up to unpack later in the book. But Paul at the very beginning wants to tackle this head on and say, look, I'm going to talk about this later, but right now I just want you to know, believer in Corinth, I want you to know church in Corinth, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. You may be fighting over these gifts. You may be seeking to overstep one another in these gifts and get the attention in the gathered assembly. But man, you are just beating the air. That's what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians. I want to run my race and fix my eyes. I don't want to beat the air like a boxer that's just wasting his energy. How many times are we beating the air? You see, I would dare say, because I know this is the struggle in my own life, but the temptation for me, and I would say you, is to find our identity in what we are not rather than in who Christ is. Would you say that's true? We don't find our identity in who our Savior is. We find our identity in who we are not and who we wish we were. But it's a useless exercise. 
You are not lacking in any gift. Find your sufficiency in Christ. Because when you find your sufficiency in Christ, that is what is going to enable you to have the proper perspective in all these other areas. You see, we are not lacking. Rather than lacking Paul emphasizes here that we are eternally secure. You're not lacking in any gift. And then that next phrase, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is a moment-by-moment assurance. It doesn't say, hey, you are not lacking, Christian, when Jesus comes back. He says, hey, you are not lacking, Christian, when you ask Christ, you turn to Christ to be your Savior, but man, now you've messed it up. No, this is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day assurance. We have this hope as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are eternally secure. We are assured of his continued work in our hearts and in our lives. And notice what verse 8 says. He doesn't just stop there. He says, who will sustain you to the end? So lest you fear, okay, I am waiting for the return of Christ. That's my hope. But man, I don't think I'm going to make it. Not going to be able to make it to that finish line. He says it is Christ who's the one that is literally sustaining you. So not only is he the gift giver, but he's the gift sustainer. This is the message of the gospel hope from without, not hope from within. We are assured of his continued work. But not only does he say he will sustain us to the end, but he even ups the ante. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. On that final day, guiltless. My, oh my, oh my. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, what a statement to this church. Guiltless. Man, Paul addresses more specific problems to this church than in any other book in the New Testament. But yet he assures them that in Christ, he will work to refine his people so that they are guiltless on the final day. If you want a cross-reference for that, you can write down Colossians 1, 21 and 22. You see, folks, it's not that God somehow overlooks sin or it's not somehow that we can sweep sin under the rug. We as Christians, our gospel response uh, should be that we want to deal with sin. But we know at the end of the day that it is God's work through Christ that makes us stand guiltless. It's never how much we can clean up our own act. It is the work of God transforming our hearts through the Holy Spirit as we respond to Him in faith, trust, obedience. 
So in essence, before we wrap up this theme of grace in verses 4 to 8, I want to just share with you an interesting thing. This is how Paul defines the Christian life. Verses 5 and 6, you were in every way enriched or made rich in him, in all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. We see grace for the past. God's grace was given to them. It was confirmed among them. Then we go to verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see grace not only manifested to us in the past, we see grace manifested to us in the present. And then in verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see grace manifested and promised in the future. It's all God's grace. Past, present, future. We can rest in God's grace. God's grace in good times, God's grace in COVID times, I'll just use that as shorthand for all trials of life, (laughs) God's grace for our church family during COVID, when it seems like it's, 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 it's so difficult because so many of our church can't be here, and, and, and there's concern, and there's, there's that sense of disconnectedness, God's grace in the present, and God's grace in the future. It's all God's grace. So as we close, we jump to verse 9. And we see that the gospel produces hope, Paul shares with us, because of the mass outworking of grace. And how can we summarize this one sentence that Paul writes? It's summarized in verse 9. God is faithful. We, We have gospel hope Because we realize that everything we need is found in Jesus. And we have hope because through Jesus we see the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. I don't think there could be a three word sentence more powerful than that. How is God faithful? It says, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son. You see, God has called us to himself through Christ. We have fellowship with him now. But the fellowship of his Son involves not only fellowship now with God the Father, but now we have fellowship once again He wraps all this up, verses 1 to 9. We have fellowship with one another. This church we're going to see in uh, in, uh, a bit is full of divisions. There's not a whole lot of, of unity going on at this point. 
But Paul again reminds them that the gospel has called us into a fellowship with one another, not just himself. And if we claim Jesus Christ as Lord, there is a bond there that's stronger than biological blood relation. We've been bonded through the blood of Christ. God is faithful. So as we see this morning, we must begin, we must continue, and we must end with what truly matters. Christ must be our foundation because if we build on any other foundation, it's going to be burned away on that final day. This week, this past month, this past year, whatever the situation is, has your hope been in the reality of the everyday working of the gospel in your life? <music>